Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. We're in Matthew 10. Uh, We are finishing last week. We stopped at verse 23, and we're going to pick up uh, from there. It says in verse 24, A disciple's not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. It's enough, a disciple, that he be like his teacher, and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house, which is Beelzebul, Lord of the temple, Beelzebub, Lord, which means Lord of the Flies. He's doing a play on words there. Beelzebul, Beelzebub. Um, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, don't fear them, for there's nothing covered that won't be revealed and hidden that will not be known. So we have a principle here of a disciple not above their teacher, um, and that's common in the ancient world. It's still common today. Um, I, I, actually, I think in America, academia, the goal is that the student outpaces their teacher at some point, and the, but that wasn't typical of the first century. Um, apostles then aren't better than Jesus because they're doing everything with Jesus' teaching and Jesus' power. So even for the rest of their life, they will always, the best they can get is to be like their teacher, which is why in the Christian world we talk about we want to be like Jesus, and we want to be as, because we're discipled by Jesus to do things. And if Jesus gets persecuted, which we just saw in chapter 9, like he went out to the city. This is the other cool thing. Like he gets in a boat. He goes across the boat for two people in a graveyard. The whole city rejects him and throws him out of town, which means he and his, all his disciples, there were more people going out to grab folks than there were getting saved. And he goes all out of his way to get two people in a graveyard and then goes back to Capernaum to his multitude's ministry. So we see... Um, uh, a principle that they're there. Uh, and if Jesus gets persecuted, then why would they expect to not get persecuted? This is a tough teaching. This is heavy, right? Because if we're going to follow Jesus, the expectation should be that we're going to be persecuted and that we will have folks that are like, you know, aren't you getting a little crazy about Jesus? Um, one of the greatest hesitations for us to talk about Jesus is that idea of, well, what if they get upset? What if I cause friction? What if I lose my job by talking about Jesus too much? And Jesus' consolation to us is, yeah, you will get them upset and you will lose their job. They're going to scourge you in the synagogues, which is what he said in the first part of the chapter. Like, you know, thanks a lot, Jesus. That's, that's not good. So if they call him Beelzebub, literally, master of the house Beelzebub is Beelzebul, Beelzebub. If they've called Beelzebul, Beelzebub, um, then how much more are they going to call you of, 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 as you follow me? He says not to fear them. Fear is an interesting phenomena, but it is the thing that stops us from doing what God's called us to do. It's often the thing that stops us. And when we say, if, if we say fear is a choice, fear is actually the choice to weigh the possible bad heavier than the known good. That's fear. And, and it, breaking it down... When we fear things, it's because we believe something might, bad might happen, right? Versus when Jesus promises this the good in that action. So you're putting the maybe ahead of the for sure when you fear. 
And Jesus says to do the opposite. We put the weight of the promised good, truth, ahead of the possible bad. And we move forward anyways. And that would be called faith. So you balance these two ideas, and, and fear really becomes the opposite of faith. So when they saw Jesus die, and then hundreds of people saw Jesus rise from the dead, and now we see millions of Christians around the world over the last 2,000 years willing to die for their faith, you have a system where the servant doesn't get greater than the master. That is the game plan for millions of Christians. They're going to believe this till they die. And some of them, they will die due to persecution. Again, not a huge popular message. Um, and then he, he's going to give us three reasons as we go through the rest of the chapter why it's okay to die for our faith, why it's okay to be persecuted. And the first reason, verse 26, because what God's saying is true. And then in verse 27, because we have an eternal spirit that we need to worry about, not our mortal spirit. And then in verse 31, the Father loves you infinitely. So we have truth, eternity, and love is our three combative elements to fear and it, and i think those are the things we sit and meditate on day and night like lord help me to focus on the true the eternal and how much you love me and those things overcome all of it nothing's covered that will not be revealed in verse 26 is that first reason there is in eight and nine there was persecution it was indirect persecution gossip hurting behavior, and then there was direct, angry, and public persecution from the Pharisees, right? We've seen all types that Jesus experienced. He's not asking his disciples to do anything he just didn't demonstrate for them. So when we balk at the first stage, um, then we, we're definitely going to balk at the later stages. If we're worried about slander and false tongues and people lying about us, then how much more are we going to get upset when they're overtly in our face? So the idea is to be innocent and sweet and nice uh, but to be aware and, and shrewd about these things. Jesus says it'll be a revealed. Essentially, eternally, we're all going to face judgment. So this is one of the solutions. When you get somebody coming at you, there is nothing they do in secret that isn't going to be revealed. It's all coming out some, at some point. And that can be a great, wonderful, balming effect on your heart when you realize everything they're doing in secret, God's going to bring it out in the open. And I like to even think, I'll be there to see it. Like, I'm going to witness that when it happens, and it makes me feel great. Verse 27, whatever I tell you in the dark, you speak in the light. So he's teaching them privately, but they're going to go out and be public. And when you, what you hear in the ear, you preach it on the housetops. Housetops were great podiums and stages in the ancient world because they had flat roofs. So you could go to a market area, and then somebody could stand on a rooftop and talk to everybody in the market area. Do, and do not fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. There's eternity. You have an eternal soul. Don't worry about what they do to you with this one. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't fear, therefore, you are more valued than sparrows. Jesus says it. They repeat it. Jesus teaches them privately. They share it publicly. The idea here is be relentless in what you're doing. What you hear in the ear is likely immediate, what he's telling the disciples. But that phrase, what you hear in the ear, might be a reference to Isaiah. And Matthew does this a lot. He works in what Jesus says. Or it's just that Jesus incarnate actually speaks his own words sometimes. right? So it's, it's not some sort of an odd like reference, but it's just how God talks. So Isaiah 30 verse 21 says, Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And whenever you turn to the right hand or to left, or whenever you turn to the left. 
So Isaiah promises that you're going to have this quiet, still, small voice that guides you. And that's what we listen to. So, uh, you know, practically speaking, if there's a practical application, when we do devotions and we do it in private and we do it quietly, those are the things we talk about when we go out into the world. So when we, come to, when we come to church on a Sunday and we hear God's word, maybe there's one or two ideas from the teaching today that you're like, man, that just spoke to me. That's what you tell everybody when you go out into the world. When Jesus talks to you, you share that with people. And that means you're sharing God's word with people when you do it. So that idea of walking out and saying, oh man, I learned this this week, or I've just been on this verse and I can't let it go. It just keeps ringing in my head. Those things you hear in quiet are the things you proclaim from the rooftops. That's what you go out into the world talking about. I think sometimes we think there's a formula to sharing our faith or that you can be good at it or bad at it. But really, if you're in the word every day, then you have things to talk about every day. And it's amazing the connections that happen. Like this is the beauty. When we first were trying to walk with the Lord, we saw mature believers and they would say things like, man, I was in devotions. And then I ran into somebody who was struggling with depression. And that morning in devotions, I was reading about joy in the spirit and I was able to just give them the perfect verse. That happens all the time in the kingdom. In fact, it's the mechanic. And I think these verses back that up. This is how it works. Rather feel him, it says in verse 28, but rather fear him versus doing not fear. We see him covering this concept over and over and over again. The repetition is that God is trying to address this. He realizes this is the chief enemy of proclaiming our faith. New believers just proclaim the faith because they don't know what's coming. They don't know that they're going to get kickback from some people. And after you get that kickback, you get gun shy. You want to kind of not talk about your faith because some people reject it. And Jesus is like, you got to resist that. Come against that. So um, we fear God, and fear becomes a motivational factor. Fear always motivates. It can motivate us rightly, or it can motivate us wrongly. If we fear God and the effects of disowning God, then that's good motivation. That kind of fear is effective. So Jesus doesn't just say, don't fear. He says, rather, fear him. Fear your eternal father and what he thinks of you versus what that human thinks of you. This, creates, uh, this shouldn't create in us rudeness towards other humans, but it should create in us a desire that we don't have this desire to please other humans either. We're not going out trying to cause ripples and waves with people. That's a clear biblical concept. But we're also not trying to avoid the significant topics about our spirit and our faith and a walk with Jesus. So the copper coin reference is just that, look at how cheap this is. I mean, we make pipes out of copper. It's not an expensive metal and there's tons of it in the world. Uh, and that's true of the ancient world too. But you're much more valuable. Uh, God values those cheap birds. He values you. In other words, God's not going to send you out into persecution situations and just waste you, right? He's not going to take a prescient... If it's that rare that people follow Jesus with their whole life, he's not going to waste that resource in, in, by sending you out to get killed. So if you're going to get killed, there's going to be impact by that. And I'm glad we live in a society as as... At this point, at least, you don't get killed. The worst that can happen is you lose your job. That's our version of getting killed. And it's, you know, you can still breathe and do your thing. Um, but you're more valuable than those birds. So he sends us out as sheep into the wolves, but he doesn't send us out as sheep to the slaughter. Like, that's not the point of our faith and our walk. Our point is to bring other souls into it. So those workers that he has are, are, are not going to get wasted on an irrelevant persecution. Um, He counts the hairs on our head. (laughs) 
I know I got to make the joke that for some people that's more of a miracle than others. Um, but we're precious to God. And one thought that was interesting, and, and uh, I can't remember which commentary it was, but the hairs on our head are a changing number every time we comb our hair. And every time, like every time we brush, every time we go to bed and grow a new follicle, like the number of hairs on our head is not a constant number, but God keeps track of even that detail about us. And just that thought about God's complete omniscience is kind of amazing. The Father's will is mentioned. If, if we are killed, God's going to do it to save others so that his plan goes forward. This is about God's will, not ours. Verse 32. Again, these are tough verses. Verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I'll also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Uh, wow. The word confesses there is homologio which is the same word. Um, it's a, well, how do I say this? It's a, a singular word. When we talk, it's God's talk. So it's not like a, a plural, and in the English with the S there, sometimes it can look like, whoever talk me before men, him I will talk before my Father who is in heaven. It's singular. The kind of talk we talk should be God's talk. It should be one thing. So if we say the same things as God, like the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, that's what he's referencing when he's talking to his disciples here. Say the same things I said. Don't add to it. Just repeat what I'm saying, which is why I think morning devotions are a great way to talk to other people about our faith. Here's what I've been reading this morning. And they'll either eyes will glass over or they'll just light up and be interested in it. Um, and the glass over thing, you know, we find other people to chat with. Um, if we aren't public in our faith... We're not doing what God's asked. And, and again, I'm just saying what's in verse 32. If we don't talk with God's words, we're not following his commandments. It's hard to call ourselves his servant. And that's a, like, at least for me, that's convicting of the large majority of the hours I've spent on this earth. It's so much easier to talk about things that don't matter. So much less confrontational. Um, so when we praise things, it should have value in what we praise. So if we think the world of Jesus, we should be talking about Jesus. If we serve him, we should be doing that. So, And if that's the case, again, last week I talked about kind of an economy of the kingdom and this exchange of how we behave. And it seems to be that how we speak has a value before the God Almighty. If when we speak this way, he then speaks that way about us and it's the same, the same reciprocal relationship. And Jesus keeps kind of bringing this up. Now the Lord says, be it, be it far from me, for them that I honor, me I will honor, and they that despise me will be lightly esteemed. 1 Samuel 2.30. Same principle that's in the Old Testament. God's going to react to us the way we react to him. Um, in the constant presence of fear and rejection from other humans. So just because I didn't want to cause conflict, or that the argument you hear right now, God's a God of peace, so I never want to bring up anything that disturbs people's peace. That's a total misreading of the Word of God. Absolute misreading of the Word of God. Peace is better than any kind of argument, so I'm just going to play it. And this is kind of Minnesota nice, right? It's better to just not talk about religion or politics because all it does is gets us to argue. I'd agree on the politics thing. On the religious thing, you're just loving that person all the way to hell. Good for you. And you're, you're not doing them any good. Um, and in some sense, like, who's a real friend to somebody who's lost? The friend that says, hey, you're lost, or the friend that just leaves them lost? 
And that's kind of, I think, what Jesus is saying here. Get out and talk to people. And if you do that for me, I'll do that for you. And what he's referring to there is judgment. At judgment day, Jesus promises to be our advocate. We don't have to defend our behavior before God Almighty. Jesus will step in and say, no, 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 I got this one. Bonnie, like, you're taken care of. You don't need to defend yourself. Because they're redeemed under my sacrifice, and Jesus takes ownership of us as though we're in his family and part of his household. And this passage doesn't really get into the whole household theology. We've talked about that at other times. The word deny there, again, interesting words. The confess is kind of that singular talk. But the word deny in the Greek is arniome, uh, which is to disregard the interests of someone or to be false to someone. So if I don't care about what God cares about, that is to deny him specifically. I disregard the interests of God. For, because I'd rather talk about, you know, Barbie dolls or G.I. Joe, depending on, you know, what toys you like. But to not say God's word is, to be passive is my point, is actually to not speak out. So just to be disregarding. doesn't mean you have to openly deny Jesus, right? That's not what it's talking about. The word that's there in the Greek is to simply be passive. So when we're passive about the things of God, come judgment day, when we got to get up to defend ourselves, He'll passively sit by and let us do it. And that's the kind of thing. God doesn't send people to hell. He simply doesn't intervene to stop it. And that's terrifying for people that are not serving the king. And then you get to verse 34. Don't think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Again, I just don't want to cause ripples with people, right? This is what he's talking about, how we interact with people as he's sending the apostles out two by two into all these cities. And he's giving them instruction around it. Your goal is not to be at peace with everybody. Again, this is contrary to mainstream Christianity in America today, where they're teaching that we just need to love people. If you need to say anything, you know, say it with your life. Have you heard this before? Right? Don't preach, just live it in front of people. And if you, if you have to say words, then do. That is absolutely not what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching us to confess, which is to speak and talk. And he's saying that if we're passive, he's going to be passive with us. And then in verse 34, he's bringing the point home. It's, you have to really misread these passages to come up with that other theology. right? He's being very clear here, and the words he's using are very specific. The idea of conversations, witnesses, confessions, testimonies, all of that language is about audible, verbal speaking that happens. Man, I love the Lord Jesus. That's audible, verbal praising of Jesus. But there are people that don't want to hear that, right? Our joy convicts them of their lack of joy. And, but that's what Jesus is talking about here, right? And it, to bring in this passage in verse 34, don't think that I came to bring, is an imposition. Uh, he's going, I didn't come to impose peace on people, right? That's not my goal. Uh, when he comes again, he will bring peace on earth, but it's going to be because he deals with these people, not because he makes them happy. So there is, this is a, again, this is really tough theology. It's hotly debated right now in Christian circles, but the idea of peace is something that we have to get our head around. So I want to look at peace in a few different spots. If you f go back in the chapter to 10, 13, verse 13, there is a, an idea of peace being something that we have and something that we give. Do you see that? A person's peace or shalom is something we have with other people. If you go into a house, 
you give them your piece, and if, you, if they don't want you there, you take your piece back. So peace is something that gets exchanged or between people. If you go to Mark, uh, it's the next book, just flip forward, you know, 20 pages or so. Mark chapter 4. I suppose I could have just gone backwards in Matthew on this one too, but the word that gets used here for peace is, I think, how I was finding these. Mark 4.39, Jesus says to the sea, peace be still. And so peace is something he commands on nature. And God having authority over nature can command that peace, and there's instant stillness there. Flip forward another page to Mark 5. And if you look at verse 34, it talks about God being in peace and that the, she, the person, that's, the woman there that touches Jesus, he sends her in peace. Go in peace. Do you see that? And Jesus himself or God then gives peace to humans. So we've got three different kinds of peace exchanges. Human to human, God to his creation, and then we have God to humans being peace. So when he's talking to his disciples here and he's saying, go into a house, give your peace or take your peace away. And then he's instructing his disciples on how to interact with other humans when they go out to speak his words. Then we get to chapter verse 34. We can't take that out of context. He's talking about human to human peace, right? I didn't come that I, I did do not think that I came to bring peace on earth, but I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus never takes up arms. So what he's talking about here is metaphorical, and he's doing it in context of how his disciples interact with people and deal with persecution. And he's talking about it, I think, in terms of having peace or shalom with other people, because that's literally part of the same conversation. So this isn't about God bringing peace on earth when it comes to calming storms. This is not about the peace that we find with God. It's the fact that you have people representing God's word, walking around, causing people to be rippled or disheveled because of the peace of God that this other person has. That doesn't cause peace, it actually causes issues. And swords are used for cutting or dividing. So when it says peace on earth, that's, again, this is a tough passage. The, the angels in Luke 2.14 say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to our men. That's God to humanity, peace. That's the goal of Jesus ultimately, and in his second coming that comes. So what are we talking about here? We get into this, I didn't come to bring peace stuff. And again, like this isn't what you put on tapestries in the church, right? This is not that message. So the only peace that can happen between God and humans happens when we serve a God or a master and in the truth of our relationship with God. Only now, after, and again, the sword often gets associated with the word of God, after we hear the word of God, it forces us to make a decision. That's not a state of peace. But if we make a decision to serve our God, that enters us into a state of peace. The purpose of these disciples going out into the world is to get people to make that decision. The first word of John the Baptist, the first word of Jesus' ministry was repent. Turn from your ways and turn to God's ways. It's the only path to success. We were talking about psychology and how psychologists are trained to help people. The only help, the only peace people can find in their soul is to get right with God. You can go to years of counseling and still be stirred, right? And your soul can be unsettled. But when you have peace with God, those issues evaporate. 
peace is something that comes in that situation. When we give and take peace human to human, that's a beautiful spiritual exchange. When God gives us peace, it's a supernatural dissolving of our anxiety and worry and fear. It happens instantly. And we just realize we have peace and all we can do is not be in the word and let the, the chaos stir back up over time. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I know this is a long discussion on peace, but I, this is the kind of verse to talk about it on. The kind of peace God promises is our peace with him, but he does not promise peace with other people. It's not part of the gospel. And that's a really difficult thing because in the English we use the same word peace, but there's two different pieces talked about in the Bible. Here Jesus is talking about, I'm sending you out, you're going to speak my words, and you will not have peace with other people. You're going to cause some conflict. So there's world peace, there's Jesus' peace, there's peace between people. And historically, believers have always been called people with a sword. The world perceives us as troublemakers, not peacemakers. And, which is amazing, because we get together, we sing songs, we read the Bible, we pray together, we wish well of each other, we actually pray for our enemies, yet we're troublemakers. The Romans called Christians haters of men, and they threw them to lions for fun. Today we're called hate speech people. Because for us to say that there's a way that's holy and a way that's not holy, they say we're hating on everyone who's being not holy with their lifestyle. It's not the case at all. We love them. We want them to be holy. But then how dare we say that to people? This is the relationship. Luke often uses the term sword to talk about division. There's the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6, 17. There is the Word of God as a two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12. So the words of God lead us to righteousness. The response to righteous people is jealousy or antagonism, and ultimately the final result is violence. Cain and Abel, it's this, right? Cain got upset that Abel was right with God, and it drove him to violence. This is how, this is what happens in the world. So, I actually add a step. Righteousness, usually there's dismissiveness, mockery, and then jealousy, antagonism, violence. That's the trajectory. And it's never changed. It's been that way since the beginning of time. And I think Jesus is really just coaching his disciples on that idea. So if we live for Jesus, people get upset with that. Satan can't have us being vocal for Jesus. He's perfectly happy if we just live as nice people for the rest of our life and never give glory to Jesus. He's great with that awesome because now there's plenty of nice people that aren't Christians and no one sees the contrast no one sees the difference that responsibility to be anxious about this world becomes a prison that God's actually trying to free us from to not care what other people think about us is an empowering kind of thing so you get peace with the word you lose your peace with people I'm going to do a little more. Before I get to verse 35, I got extra time today because we're only doing half a chapter. Um, Ezekiel 6.3, I'm just going to read a bunch of verses. I don't, you don't need to flip to them, but do write them down so later this week you can go back to these yourself. I want to talk about that idea of a sword and how the word of the Lord gets associated with sword. Uh, Jesus is saying something that his listeners, his disciples, apostles, they understood this connection. So when he brings up a sword, if those kids had gone to little Jewish kids' school, they would have understood these connections that maybe we miss. Ezekiel 6.3, 
Say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, to the hills, to the ravines, to the valleys. Indeed, I, even I, will bring a sword against you, and I will destroy your high places. God hates false worship. His word destroys false worship. And false worshipers hate how easily we destroy their false worship. Talk to an avid sports fan and just tell them that it's stupid, that it doesn't mean anything, and at the end of the day, a bunch of grown men crossing a chalk line just doesn't matter. That really angers sports fans because you're showing how false their worship is. right? It's one thing to enjoy a good sporting event. It's another thing to worship it, track it, read the box scores the next day, idolize, put up little shrines in your house. It's a whole different thing. And I don't want to just pick on sports fans. I do that because I like sports. There are tons of false idols in our society. There are tons of false worship areas in our society. And to laugh and say, I don't care, when they're talking about the next greatest TV show, to just say, yeah, I didn't watch that. I don't really care. The way in which God's word changes us, we automatically debunk false worship because we see it for what it is. It's false. It's empty. It's fictional, right? Yeah, then I'm not interested. I would rather deal with real things. But think of the amount of worship that goes to towards false narratives and movie and drama and Netflix and binge watching. Think of the hours per day being spent across our country on things that are totally false, absolutely imaginary, like Greek god worship and making up all sorts of myths and stories. They're not real. And Christians are just not interested. Ephesians 6, 17. Um, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is of God. In, in case Christians hadn't made the connection yet, the Spirit of God in people is a sword. It attacks false worship and goes after it. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and in the intents of men you got to like the writer of Hebrews, right? He lays it out, and this is the connection Jesus is drawing to his apostles. So <laughs> Jesus comes to make peace, the angels proclaim it, but the earth doesn't have peace. Peace comes after war. Once the conflict has been decided, then there's peace. And at this point, when Jesus shows up on earth, there's conflict. There is an enemy, there's a, a battleground, there's the souls of humanity in defiance against God, and it hasn't changed today in 2022. There's still a battle going on for the hearts and minds of humanity. So then I said, Jeremiah 4.12, Ah, Lord God, surely you have greatly deceived the people in Jerusalem, saying you shall have peace, whereas the sword is what reaches the heart. Verses 35 through 37, which we're about to read, clearly give examples of family conflicts to the apostles of Jesus in context of this human-to-human -human peace that's going to get stolen with the sword. This means that when we become believers, one of our first battlegrounds is our own family. And that this is just the reality. What I love about Jesus, he just tells the truth. He doesn't fill his disciples with a bunch of fluff. He doesn't sell them, you know, T-shirts on TV with a, a mug of peace you know, to drink from. He actually just tells them the truth. You guys are going to have problems with your family. And this is how this is going to work. He started this in Matthew 8, 22, when he did it first. And the person comes, oh, I want to follow you. And he says, but I got to go take care of my dad. And he says, you know what? Let the dead bury their dead. I want, I've asked you to get into a boat. Get into a boat with me for a one-day trip. Like your dad can wait for a day. 
John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, nor let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus actually leaves on the same theme of peace and that he gives the peace just like he tells his disciples to do it. Living for Jesus is exciting. I would say amazing. It's a rush to have these deep conversations with people we love and care about. It's absolutely invigorating. It's an adrenaline rush, right? And to be in a, you know, a situation where God's going to use us to bring peace to other people, there, but first there's that sword relationship. God owns us and it's his harvest, but we get to show up and be there and be part of it. That's a, an amazing thing. So, but don't make a mistake. In verse 24, he didn't come for that. And in verse 25, he did come for a different kind of peace. And that elicits a response. So for example, verse 35, I've come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Right? It's hard to misread that verse. There's not even much to translate. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Again, I read chapter 10 and I'm just like, I just, it's a joy that because we're going through the Bible chapter by chapter, we don't skip stuff like this. But this is the nuts and bolts of living out our faith. This is the good stuff. He does not say to not love our family. He says that God gets priority because the love of family is natural. It's instinctual. Even people that aren't serving the Lord love their own family. It is the closest, most intimate relationships that we have and that we should have. And notice that he doesn't, uh, he says man against father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. It's interesting that he doesn't bring husband against wife because there are tons of conflicts in marriages. It's how marriages work. But he takes the biologically the most intimate relationships, fathers and sons, daughters and mothers. There's not a lot of mothers that wouldn't die for their daughter and their, well, their sons too. But that mother and father relationship is what he targets. It's the most naturally bonded relationship that we have, our own kids, right? But he, and he quotes Micah here, and, and Matthew doesn't set it apart as a quote, but he's definitely quoting Micah. Uh, chapter 7, verse 6, For sons dishonor fathers, daughters rise against mothers, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his household. This was predicted in the Old Testament. The prophet said this is what was going to happen. But it, the idea, the key here is he doesn't say not to love. He assumes that we love our kids. He assumes that we love our in-laws. He assumes those things but we can't put them in front of loving God. And in context, the point of this is we are willing to talk to our family with the words that we confess our love for God to our families. And they may get sick of hearing about it. Will you stop talking about your Bible studies? No, because it's what it's, if you love me, that's what makes my life complete. It's what I want to talk about. But I'll talk about your stupid false worship as much as you want. You know, you tell me all about the stuff that doesn't matter and it's false. And we, I hope you'd be more diplomatic with, than that. But that's the essential truth of it is that our love for Jesus is true and a love for anything else is false worship. When we ask about this idea, the idea of that family commitment being strong, it was even stronger in the first century. What Jesus is saying here would have landed like a nuclear bomb with his apostles because they, they were in a family-tight culture, right? They didn't you know, get married and move off to other states. 
they stayed together as a household, which meant they had multi-generational living, maybe 20, 30 people in the house, right? So they, they would talk about that tight relationship that family had, and Jesus goes right after it. Serving God comes first, and after we serve God, we can serve the people we love. If we've given God his due, everything else follows. Oh, shoot, I should have quoted the verse on that. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and everything else is added unto that. after that. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. If you love me first, then all the... Wouldn't you, aren't you a better father if you love the Lord and serve God first? Aren't you a better son, daughter, mother, grandmother, grandparent, dog owner? Aren't you better at all of your family relationships if Jesus comes first? And that's what he's teaching his disciples. Okay, the greatest threat to God being in first place is not the enemy. It's not sinful earthly activities. That is not the greatest temptation. And look at how Jesus is teaching his apostles. The greatest temptation to God being in first place is whatever would be in second place. And that's true in any race. The greatest threat to first place is the second place competitor. And second place is going to be those tightest relationships we had. I remember when I asked Steph to marry me, I said, don't marry me if any of this is a problem. Some of them were dumb, juvenile, immature things. Like I wanted to hang out with my guy buddies and I don't want to get married if I can't do that anymore. But some of my thought was God changing me at a very young age to say, I'm always going to put God first. And if that bugs you, please don't marry me. I don't want to marry somebody who thinks that they're first. You know, I really want to serve my Lord and you got to be okay with being broke you got to be okay with going overseas. Wherever God calls me, let's be okay with that. And, you know, thankfully, Steph put up with those things. Um, good things are the things that compete with God more than the bad things. And that's why Jesus is bringing out these family relationships as examples. There is a dividing line there of what comes first and what gets priority. God wants, he will tolerate no other idols, even other people. All right. Part of why I'm bringing up this, first of all, is it, I thought it was really funny. It was an addictive in the Christian world, so I'm going to step out of the Bible teaching for a sec. Elon Musk was interviewed by a Christian uh, group called the Babylon Bee. They do Christian satire. Grant, did you read this interview? So they're interviewing. They're doing kind of a serious interview, even though they're kind of a comedy news service, like they do satire and whatnot. So he laughs, and he's like, you know, what are you guys anyways? Like he'd never heard. And they're like, well... You know, we're kind of a ministry. We bring satire. We poke fun at, like, some of the sacred cows and whatever. And, and then he kind of picks on them and says, well, why are we doing this interview on a Sunday? Isn't this your Sabbath? And they're like, well, if you accept Jesus as your personal Savior, then we're doing ministry, and then it's all okay. First of all, rationalization, not exactly what God calls us to do. And then they say, could you do us a quick solid, like making it okay to do work on a Sunday? Can you make, do us a quick solid and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Personal Lord and Savior, it's a really quick prayer. Okay, look at how Jesus is training his apostles and he's giving them long discussions about the costs and price. And the greatest price we're kind of at with this, your own family's going to hate you. Like you're going to have fights with people you love. But this is how Christians today, this is what I talk about by mainstream Christianity. It's just a quick prayer. We're not introducing the cost of discipleship. We're not introducing the challenges or the beauty and the relationship with God. They're just like, say a quick prayer with us and make Jesus your personal Lord and Savior. So Musk sat stunned for a few seconds. This comes from the Babylon Bee. And then he responded, I agree with the principles that Jesus advocated, 
not from chapter 10, but you know, the ones he wants to agree with. There are, there's some great wisdom in the teachings of Jesus, and I agree with those teachings. And then he lists off some things, um, but, um, it, you know, love your neighbor, turn the other cheek. You just look. Those aren't bad things. But hey, quote, if Jesus is saving people, I mean, I won't stand in his way. Musk added, sure, I'll be saved. Why not? So the Babylon Bee host celebrated Musk's response. I think he said yes, Nicole asserted. Uh, so I thought the interview was ridiculous, right? That is not salvation. That is a guy, right? You know, so he never chooses to follow Jesus as his Lord and Savior and his King, right? The words are there, but clearly Musk is not submitting to Jesus as his guide in life, right? And the sure I'll be saved, why not? Well, I can tell you why not. Matthew chapter 10, that is why you should not, people are going to hate you, you're going to be persecuted, you'll be flogged in the synagogues. There's plenty of reasons that Jesus teaches why not to follow him. But he does that in truth because that's the reality of the relationship. And he doesn't want people foolishly following him and not counting the cost. Because if you don't count the cost, there's not a real commitment there. If Jesus is cheap, then he's also worthless. If salvation's just a quick prayer, then there's no value in it. Right? If we are going to have an eternal salvation, there's a lifetime commitment that matches that. If we want him to save our life, we're called to lose our, and, be, and serve a master. We're humbly submitting to a bond-servant-slave relationship to a living God. That's how Paul puts it. Every one of the disciples, when they write, they count the cost, and they use language like that. And when Jesus talks in chapter 10, he's doing the same thing. This language of you're not worthy to me gets said three times in this passage. These people aren't worthy of me. If you're not willing to count the cost and do this, then you're not worthy to me, right? So lowering the invitation of God into like Girl Scout cookie gifts, even Girl Scout cookies charge money for their cookies. God has a charge. There is a worth exchange here. Matthew is a tax collector. This is what he did. So when he uses language like that's not worth it, he's talking about things that are a worthy exchange. And if you want to make God first in your life, that's a worthy exchange for eternal life. If he's always going to be second place, you always got an excuse why not to do what he's told you to do, if there's always a reason to do something, then that's not a worthy exchange. Jesus as Lord and Savior is a prize worthy of our lives. That's why we sing, he is worthy. And we're singing, he's worthy for me to give up my life and be his servant. If we seek that, we actually bow to Jesus and it's a weighed out exchange that God mercifully, and this is called grace, it's not really a good deal from God's perspective. Billion people on the earth, my life is not really worth his life on a cross. It's not a fair trade, but it goes the other direction. So when we chintz on our side of that horribly lopsided, grace-filled equation, think of how insulting that is. You know, he gave his life on a cross in exchange for ours, but we don't really give him his first priority, and it's a bad exchange. Verse 37, virtually every earthly relationship. Verse 38, every earthly ambition. And verse 39, my own life, that's the exchange. And it's a trade. And again, I'm hitting it hard because I feel like Jesus is hitting it hard in this chapter too. Right? If this is convicting, then it's convicting. It is for me. Pretty much everything in our life, our relationships, our ambitions, and our life get in the way of serving the king. They become the competition. They are the second place that competes for first place. 
careers, love of life, people, success, achievement, jobs. We go after all these things that at the end of the day we can't take it with us when we die. And God says, how about you trade it for God and get an eternal reward? That's the trade. By the way, this is not saying to abandon everything. It doesn't even say to abandon anything. It just says put it in priority. Whoever puts this before me is not worthy of me. So it doesn't say to abandon friends and family. I hate when Christians do that. Well, I don't need to talk to anybody because I'm just going to put them second. No, it, it doesn't say to do that. It says to give God the primacy. But after God, we do have love. We do have compassion. We do care for people. We do care for our mothers and our fathers and our brothers and sisters. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Verse 38. Taking up a cross, this is prior to crucifixion. Like we wear crosses on our neck. Right? We have little bracelets. We put them on our house walls. And we think crosses are wonderful. But when this is being spoken to these apostles, I know it's a, a reminder we need to have. This was simply an ugly way to die that the Romans had. Jesus is foreshadowing his own death, but he's also being really honest with his disciples. Peter's going to die on a cross, right? So this worst form of ugly crucifixion, in the Greek, cross is an upright stake. Uh, it's a unique term that the Phoenicians invented. It's a jarring choice of words that Jesus picks here. If you don't want to go even to the worst form of death, you're not worthy of me. You're not willing to just, whatever the cost, you're willing to give it, then I don't want you as my servant. Since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who, who believe, 1 Corinthians 1.21. This is the message of Jesus Christ. This is where in the 1920s, prior to a revival in those big tents, William Jennings Bryan was preaching sermons like in the hands of an angry God. The idea of repentance is not a harm to the kingdom. It's a beautiful gift to the kingdom. If we acknowledge that we want to serve him, we do that. Verse 39, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. There's a paradox here, but you can see how he's been setting it up the whole chapter. right? He's being painfully honest with these apostles. If you go sending out and you're going to speak my name, this is what's going to happen. Another thing here, he's not calling the whole church to go out and get killed. right? There are multitudes then there were the disciples that came to him and talked, and now he's pulled aside 12 men to be apostles, and he's going to send them out. The word apostle means to send out. He's not talking to the whole group of believers and followers, but he is talking to the people that he's specially sending out to repeat his words in other cities before he comes. So he's, he's giving this unique responsibility, but then with that unique responsibility comes this unique set of prioritization of God that he's calling people to. That's a paradox. It's confounding to the world that anyone would give up their life, but it's freeing to the faithful. It's a beautiful thing. The trap of our life is that we want to make our life better. We want to go after our desires, what we want, what we're planning for, but there's no end to our own desires. You can buy the nicest piece of furniture, and then immediately you're going to want the next set of furniture. I learned this with G.I. Joe toys and Star Wars toys. I would get the Boba Fett action figure, and after a week, I just wanted the new Ewok action figures. It never ends. And that's Satan loves that. He can get us into a trap for decades where all we're doing is going after the next thing. 
and that next thing is done. So if we lose that life of our own desires, we give up our will, we actually find freedom in Christ. This is where that language comes from. It's beautiful. To find in the Greek is to come upon something or to meet with something after searching for it. So the word find in the Greek has two elements to it, actually two verbs wrapped up into one. One is that we're seeking something, and two is that we actually happen upon it, right? And so in, actually in the English, it's kind of the same too. But we can look inside ourselves forever, and it's a, it's, it's a, all you're going to find is something that's ultimately helpless in the eternal sense. So go on, look deep within yourself as Disney tells you to, and you're going to probably find something that's not very worthy. And that's a horrifying and depressing thought, but at least depressed people are honest. Like, at least they're recognizing, yeah, I'm looking deep inside, and there's not much there, right? And Disney's like, oh, there's a precious gem. Keep looking. No, there's not. It's just an idiot that wants to serve myself all the time. But everything I do for the kingdom, when I serve and think of other people, there's actually a finding there, right? God says to faithfully attend and to be in the Word. So I go to church every Sunday, and I do it faithfully. I put that first before anything else in my life. God says to pray and fellowship with other believers, so that comes first before other things in my life. God says to um, worship Him, so I try to worship Him even when I screw up the songs, but I'm just going to give everything I have to doing that until somebody shows up who does it with more gifting. When we do those things, we're not serving ourselves, we're serving other people. That's the that's the real solution to anger and depression and fear and anxiety. Remember, we just got done talking about fear. So he, he gives a solution to it. He doesn't just say, don't, don't do it. He says, do this instead. When we fear God and do those other things that are not for our own benefit, but we lose our life for Jesus' sake, there is something to be found. But we have to do the searching before the finding can happen. I love how God does this. He doesn't command us to serve him. That would be tyranny. He invites us to serve him. That's love in both sides of the equation. When we choose to crucify ourselves, not ourselves like physically, but our plans, our intentions, our goals, our skills, and we just say, Lord, everything I have you gave to me, I'm just giving it back to you. How do you want to use me? What do you want to, how do you want to use my resources? Because you gave them to me. They're all yours. What do you want me to do? In doing that, there is something to be found. And that's part of the beauty of this. If we trust a good and holy God, he's all-powerful, we have better than what we can muster on ourselves. Think about this. We are limited in what we can do in this world. God is unlimited. So it's a really unfair exchange. But um, again, I'm being very practical here. My life isn't worth much to start with. My talent, skills, and gift are probably bested by somebody else somewhere else. If I give it to God, suddenly... I have eternal resources coming through me that can do anything God wants to do with my life. I kind of like that exchange in a purely selfish way. So if I want to find my life, I'm going to lose it if I do it on my own. But if I say I give up and let the Lord work through me, suddenly I'm going to actually find my own life in doing that. I am a child of the King. That's my new identity. I have a new name in heaven. That's who I am because I'm not going to do that on my own. I'm going to do it based on what God makes. It's a great exchange. Lord says, I know the plans I have for you, but he doesn't force those plans on us. But he's got plans for us. Jeremiah 29, 11, if you want the verse. This is a great one to put on your wall, by the way. Given that in Matthew 10, there aren't a lot of great ones for your wall. 
This is a good one. I know the plans I have for you, says Lord. They're plans for good, not for disaster. I want to give you a future and a hope. That implies that our plans don't have a future and they don't have a hope. They are dead ends, but humans love to think they got the plan. And this is why it's hard for a rich man to get saved. They've, they're on top of the world. And, and, and it's hard for them to think that that plan's kind of empty. So we trade our will for his hope. And that hope is in a resurrected Christ. And we don't value our own lives more than we value the freedom in Christ. I'll take an un, a reckless freedom over a safe uh, tyranny any day of the week. And this is one of the struggles that our society is having right now. They're debating between safety and courage. And we have the answer to that, which is a hope in Jesus Christ and eternal salvation to where we don't walk around fearing death all the time. It seems foolish to lay everything down for the kingdom. And outside the kingdom, people just don't get that. It's foolish to the world. But God's chosen the foolish things of the world to put the shame the wise. And God's chosen the weak things of the world, 1 Corinthians 1, to put to shame the things that are mighty. This is where God does cool stuff in the kingdom. Okay, so we get back to our chapter, verse 40. He who receives you, receives me. He who receives me, receives him who sent me. And he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall be no means lose his reward. We're back to Matthew's economy of the kingdom, right? There's an exchange going on in the kingdom. There's an economy here. I love these verses blew me away this week. Really unpacking this spiritually, Jesus affirms the idea of a spiritual authority structure in that he gives us his words and then we speak for him. So if a messenger goes from one kingdom to another, the job of that messenger is to faithfully repeat the words of his king to that other kingdom, an ambassador, right? And that's the whole role. So if, a if you go into another kingdom representing a king and th that other kingdom then kills the messenger, they're actually doing an act of violence against the first kingdom that they came from. And that, I think that's what Jesus is getting at in verses 40 through 42. There's an exchange going on here that when we give our life to the Lord, we become his messenger. The good king would see the killing of his messenger as an act of war, and the war is on. If someone persecutes a person of God, they're picking a fight with God Almighty. Good luck to them. Get out of the way because the lightning bolts are coming. And I, I don't know why, but this is, I think having gone through some persecution, like American style, people don't like me persecution. And some of you have been through that too. You can mock what God's word says, but that's between you and God. I'm getting out of the way. I'm just the messenger, right? And they love to shoot the messenger, but boy, you shoot the messenger, you got to fight with the king. Now you got kingdoms at war. And you got an almighty God against wimpy humans. Like, what the Assyrians didn't pay attention, and the Egyptians didn't pay attention. The Babylonians didn't tune into that. The Midianites, the Amorites, the Edomites, they all forgot about that. And God just won, right? He wipes people out. We're going to do Samuel tonight, and the Philistines are trying to do business. And God, without any Israelite, deals with the Philistines, right? It's an unfair fight. But... That's how it works. So here's the principle. God sees reactions to the body of Christ as part of his judgment at the end of days. That's the sword that we bring. We're in a battle. When we joyfully say, oh, this is what the Lord's teaching me. I love this. That's the first move on the battlefield. How people react to that 
is going to determine how God carries out his battle with those people. And at the end of days, there's going to be people that get judged. So when he says you in this, he receives you, receives me, he's talking to apostles, people that are sent out speaking his words, confessing his words before men. And we're and in our time, we're proclaiming the risen Christ. When he says me, me here is Jesus, immediately God in person, which is why in 41 it says, he receives me, receives him who sent me, right? So again, in verse 40, we have three references to God, me, me, and me, which is, again, another little Trinitarian kind of thing that's going on there. Um, but Jesus is making it clear that he is God and he speaks for God when he's incarnate on earth. And if we speak for him, then it's, that's the authority structure. The prophet, in verse 41, he receives a prophet. A prophet is someone who speaks God's words that's associated kind of with the Old Testament, right? And there's the gift of prophecy in the New Testament. So when God speaks to an individual and they actively proclaim what God said to them, they're a prophet. In righteousness, because he, he, again, he's doing this, he receives me. That's Hosts seem to have the highest. If someone receives, you remember at the beginning of the chapter, he's talking about people that are worthy that host you when you come into town. So that idea of when you go into a town, people that are hosts, they have a really high honor in the kingdom. But then there's prophets, righteous man, and then even a little kid. Seems to be working his way down in, in, in prestige, but working his way up when it comes to honor. So righteousness, a prophet speaks for God or an apostle. Someone who just is righteous is someone who just lives according to God's word. They're not maybe out proclaiming. They're not an evangelist or a preacher, but they're simply living a righteous life. And they love justice and they love law, the fairness and they minister and they care for others. In God's kingdom, that's a role and it's a perfectly valuable role. So it, for those people that are righteous and, and they receive righteous people and they're good to them, then you actually get the same reward. Think of the principle here. If I host an event, if Billy Graham stays at my house and I host him, I get the same reward, if we're reading it the same way, I get the same reward at judgment as Billy Graham gets. This is why we take care of people that teach the word. This is why we take care of people that are hosts and receive people, right? So if I use what I have to bless the kingdom, I get the same reward. This does lean itself to some prosperity gospel. But I think we're not talking about physical things on earth. We're talking about spiritual rewards because that's been the context of the entire conversation of Jesus. When I get to heaven, I'm going to get rewarded for the things I do. I don't do them to get saved. I do them because I am saved. So giving a cup to a kid, you got kids that are, when he says one of these little ones, only a cup of water, cold water, I'm guessing when he says one of these, that's in, in the immediate sense. When he's talking, he probably is within eyesight of kids that are thirsty out in Capernaum, Galilean plains. And he's like, yeah, when you serve tables, think of this when we were at, uh, when we were at Lisa's house the other night. There were people that cleaned up and they just helped, right? They're bringing water to people. They're serving. And, but, and look at the reward for that. There's, so this means that even introverts and ext extroverts have roles in the kingdom of God. And they're equally valuable. In the Old Testament, when the armies went out to war, the people in the army that went to fight split the, the rewards with the people that stayed in the camp and took care of things. They got equal shares in the rewards from the battle. It was God's principle that it doesn't matter where you're at in the kingdom, you get equal rewards. Because God has plenty of rewards to give out. He's eternal. So the kingdom of heaven doesn't start with a con conquest. And the kingdom of heaven doesn't start with doing a daily radio show. 
It starts with giving a kid a cup of cold water. That's the simplicity of the kingdom. And here's the other thing. If giving out a cup of cold water actually gets me eternal rewards, nobody has an excuse to not serve, not help, not be a blessing to people, not be a minister. The whole purpose is that we don't think of ourselves first. We think of others first. I love this. Man, God is good. Every time God sees us put other people above ourselves, there's an eternal reward for that. Every faithful act or keeping godly vows, righteousness, God, there's a reward for that. Every time we move forward, even though we don't feel like it, God blesses us for that. Every time we show up, even though we wished we would have stayed home or we felt like staying home, God rewards that. God blesses that. Every time we do devotions first in the morning and giving God those devotions, God sees that as a blessing in his kingdom. Seek you first the kingdom of God. Every time we announce Jesus, every time it is the same or as of some value as, even, as getting water for people, hosting, serving, preaching. God inspires his people with the same Holy Spirit that he inspired his disciples with. The same Holy Spirit that's in you was in Paul and Peter and Mary. Like, it's the same Holy Spirit. And, and we don't really have a lot of distance between us and them. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts are of the body, though they are many, they are one body, and so also is Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 12. God promises he's watching, like even with the sparrows, he's keeping things on track, and he's watching how people respond to us. This is not rocket science, but it is hard to hear, right? God sees variety in the church, and he values every single person, from the apostle all the way to the cup servers and the people that clean up. And he receives all those things. I like that word, he shall be received. He who receives you receives me. The re to receive someone is an actual action. You're doing something. So to say, I'm just going to relax and, and learn about the Lord, but there's no action behind it, that's not what God called for. Called for action. I think God takes one sold out person over thousands of lukewarm people that don't do anything. Revelation 3.16, so then, because you're lukewarm, you're neither hot or cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's heavy language. It's heavy to people that don't do anything. <laughs> it's, it's not heavy to people that are serving the cold water. Like to us, that, that's the words of life. So we offer a choice to people when we speak his words. Serve God wholly or don't serve God at all. Make a choice. That's the sword. We explain that there's Negative things, verse 15. We explain that there is a not worthiness, verses 37 and 38. And here we see the rewards of God, the worth of what we're doing. Jesus lays out the benefits. Here's the costs. Here's the benefits. Thank you, Matthew, for framing it that way. So as he sends out his apostles, he gives them trade material. You have reward, you have peace, and you have blessings that you can give to people. And I'll honor all the things you offer. Don't take money from people, chapter 10, verse 9. Find worthy people, chapter 10, verse 11. Give salutes, give blessings. God counts all of that, and he keeps track of all of it for you. You don't even have to keep your own ledgers. And then the reward there in the Greek is mythos. Myth, mythos. I want to say that one more time. Mythos. Dues paid for labor. Matthew's using economic language. So the reward you get is like getting paid for manual labor. Right? And the the Matthew, the tax collector, professionally tracked what people owed and what they were rewarded. And he would have used these words. So we count the cost. We love the rewards, 
we put the rewards up on our tapestries. Fruit of the Spirit, blessings. We like to get little pictures with little nature scenes, and we put those things up. But notice how the passage is sandwiched when we look at this chapter. It's the concerns of the flesh or the concerns of the Spirit. Paul lays out the costs and the rewards in Galatians, and I think sums up this chapter in Matthew. Matthew sees a trade deal, and you can give up your dead-end life and you embrace an eternal life of righteousness. But I love how Paul frames this when he's taught. He's saying the same idea to other people, and in the middle is the stuff we like, but he sandwiches it with all the negative stuff. So when Paul preaches the gospel, he doesn't just preach Galatians chapter 5.22, which we all love to quote, the fruit of the Spirit stuff. In on either side of the fruit of the Spirit is the negative stuff. And it's a choice that Paul lays out when he does it. So I'm going to read from Galatians 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissension, heresy, envy, murder. I like how envy and murder are right next to each other. Like We all envy things, but it's, it's up there with murder in God's eyes drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, I've already told you about these things, just as I told you in time past that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So when we're jealous of each other, we, we're on our path to not inheriting anything. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That's so hard to do. But it's such an easy formula that children can understand it. The fruit of the Spirit starts with the word but. You got our flesh, you kill it, and there's benefits to that. Or you don't kill it, and there's eternal non-reward for that. That's the message of Jesus to his disciples. It's the message to Paul to the Galatians. The rewards are clear. And Paul doesn't say, just make a quick prayer, Elon Musk. It's super easy. God loves you and there's no cost. He doesn't do that. He lays out the costs and the benefits. There's a way of life that leads to death and there's a way of life that leads to life. So when we put it like this, it's kind of an easy, easy decision to make. You pick a side on the battlefield. You're either for God or you're against God. You're either for yourself or you're for an almighty king. Super easy. So, so Jesus lays this all out. He tells the disciples what to expect. In the next chapter, those disciples are going to go out and do their job. And we'll see how they do that, how this all plays out. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, Matthew 10 is a tough chapter. I'm just going to admit it, Lord, because you want something from us. Lord, you don't need it and you don't command it, and you don't demand it. Uh, but Lord, there it is. There's that expectation. And, you, you know, and, and Lord, we, we don't want to come before you and have you not confess us before God the Father. We, we don't want to get to judgment, Lord, and, and be weighed and to be weighed lacking. Lord, we know that our works don't earn our salvation, but we also know that if we call ourselves the servants of a king, that we need to serve the king. Lord, show us how to do that. If we need to give a cup of cold water to somebody, if you want us to just be righteous and live our lives holy, um, or if you want us to be out preaching your word, Lord, show us where you want us in the body. Help us to not have shame 
that we're not doing what other people are doing, the envy and the jealousy. Get rid of that, Lord. We don't want that. But help us also not to be lukewarm, not to just sit on our laurels and not do the things you have called us to do. Help us to be your servants. Help us to honor and support other people in the ministry. Help us to lift other people up with our words and not tear them down. Lord, help us to be a blessing and not a curse so that we can reflect you to other people. And Lord, we don't even know how to do that. Have your Holy Spirit come into us to take away the temptations, to take away even the desire to not live for you, and to change us and renew us and make us new. Give us your Holy Spirit, Lord, so we can do what you've asked us to do uh, in the same way you did your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.